You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Rick Wurtzman is head of the K.H. Moon Center for a Functioning Society at the Drucker Institute. He's written for Fast Company, Fortune Time, Business Week. His books include The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America, Obscene in the Extreme, The Burning and Banning of John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, the King of California, J.G. Boswell, and the Making of a Secret American Empire. His newest book is Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation, and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Thank you for joining me, Rick. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to see you again. This is a wonderful book. It's a very, it's really a, a compelling narrative. It's a great uh, piece of storytelling and structure because you bring us in at the you know early on in, in the pandemic uh where uh, you know everybody's starting to worry about the the frontline workers and there are more of those who work for walmart than any other store so talk about the scene where walmart is talking up all the great things it's doing for its workers yeah, yeah. So the book opens, it was March 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And, um, you know, there was a Walmart executive um, who was part of a webinar, um, several major companies talking about how they were trying to keep their workers safe. And, you know, Walmart was doing all kinds of things, right? Putting uh, kind of decals on the floor so that customers would hopefully stand six feet apart. And they were, you know, marking what the what the distance was. And they were putting up sneeze guards for their cashiers and and uh, their, you know, pharmacy clerks to be better protected. And probably, you know, more substantially, they were giving people, um, you know, paid time off to, to, you know, deal with any illness they might have had up to, you know, certain amount and of time. And, and they were, um, uh, you know, extending some bonuses, um, right? This was not the only company that for, you know, frontline workers suddenly deemed essential. They were, that was often called hero pay, right? That these, you know, incredible people who serve us every day, we suddenly came to realize were really, were essential in the economy. And, and so they, they were offering them bonuses, um, all of which was to the good. And, and, you know, so Walmart was among the companies describing the steps that had taken. Um, and it was part of a larger uh, story of how Walmart has come to invest in its workers in new ways over the last you know, seven, eight years since, since 2015. And this is, you know, the subject of my book. Um, and then, uh, as you know, from the scene, I, you know, I got off this webinar and, uh, was checking my email right after that. And, um, uh, this labor advocacy group called, uh, United for Respect had sent a rocket about how terrible Walmart was treating its workers through this period. And I was kind of, you know, I got a little whiplash, as I tried to figure out, start figuring out the real story. You know, um, I think you do a really good job of telling, you know, the Walmart story itself as part of this story. And I'd like you to talk about, A, getting access to, to Walmart because you managed to do so. And that is a big, big deal. Many have tried. Few, if any, other than yourself have succeeded. So talk about getting access. Yeah, so I've had a long relationship with Walmart. It, it goes back to 2003. I was the business editor of the Los Angeles Times, and uh, my team wrote a three-part series called The Walmart Effect, which um, really looked at the high human cost of Walmart's low prices, right? And there is a social benefit and an economic benefit, but a social benefit to having right? You know, quality goods at low prices on the shelf. You know, Walmart, some economists say, helps actually hold down the inflation rate. Inflation has been high, but it would even be higher without, you know, a company like Walmart having all these low price goods on the shelf. Um, and they've really seen that as their social mission over time was being able to provide affordable products to, to people and to working people who, who you know, really need access to them. 
Um, but there was a high human cost that we wrote about in 2003 as the company had just grown and grown and become the biggest employer in America, the biggest company by revenue in America. And, and that high human cost, you know, was uh, sort of driving some, you know, mom and pop stores on Main Street out of business, driving manufacturing overseas. And, uh, and of course, you know, what they paid their frontline workers, which certainly were not enough for, you know, a family to live on. And so we looked at we looked at all of that kind of both sides of the ledger, if you will, the pluses and the minuses. And and my team won a actually won a Pulitzer Prize for um, you know for our work um, back in two thousand four. Um, so you know Walmart knew I had been a longtime critic. Fast forward my last book, which you mentioned, the end of loyalty. I held Walmart up as a kind of paragon of twenty first century capitalism, a company that like so many others. You know, put profits ahead of people, right? Values, you know, shareholders over workers, and and I I wrote there. I think my words were literally that Walmart was a company that was placing people on a path to impoverishment. Um, you know, meaning their their frontline workers. So I I'd been a tough critic. The next, you know, by kind of flash forward a bit more, the end of loyalty came out in 2017 and 2018. My day job at the Drucker Institute, I started. Um, developing with my team a lifelong learning platform that would give uh, people the access to the knowledge and skills they need to, you know, sort of get ahead in their careers and, and uh, you know, be job ready and things like that, um, as well as thrive outside of work. And it, this ended up turning into a lifelong learning platform called Bendable, which um, we actually sell to U.S. public libraries for their patrons to access these learning resources. But at the time, it was kind of a germ of an idea, and I was out talking about the end of loyalty. I was talking about the need for more worker training and so on, and there were some Walmart folks in, in the audience in a couple of these talks I was giving, and they approached me afterwards, and we ended up finding some common ground about the need for better workforce development. And lo and behold, they ended up, along with Google and some others, being an early funder of this initiative, a philanthropic funder through their corporate foundation to the Drucker Institute for this lifelong learning project. And I was shocked. You know, I had been among their harshest critics, right? I thought, man, are they trying to buy me off? Like what, what they clearly know who I am. Why are they talking to me? And why, and then why are they giving me money? But, you know, in the end I decided, look, it, it, it didn't really matter. It was, it was, you know, for a worthy cause, this project we were doing, which is to the good and it gave me as I it gave me an opportunity to meet Walmart executives in a way I had never had a chance to before as a grantee of, of their philanthropic foundation. And I started to meet folks and it really surprised me. They they were more liberal in their politics than I thought they'd be. Many identified as progressive who I met. Um, you know, a bunch said they had come in. They were skeptical themselves. They thought of Walmart as the evil empire before they got there and then they got there and they realized, man, this is a company really trying to change its practices and treat its workers better. And, and this is a chance for me, a bunch told me to change the world from the inside. And so I became convinced as I met them, something interesting is going on. And I knew Walmart had started to raise wages in 2015. And I started to think something's interesting here. So I, I approached them and I said, look, who better to tell your story than me, this longtime critic, right? I, I'm, I'm the one who should tell this story of how you're transforming things for your frontline workers. But I'm going to need a few things. I need access. I really need you to be open. I'm going to need access to data. I'm going to need access to your executives and so on. And, you know, I'm also, uh, you know, I'll give you your due. I think there's, I think you really have come a long way and I'm going to tell that story fairly. But I'm also not going to pull any punches. And I was very straight up about this. I'm going to talk to all your harshest detractors as well. And I'm going to talk to the unions. I'm going to talk to United for Respect. I'm going to talk to, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders. I'm going to talk to, you know, all these folks I can. And and um, and then I'm going to come to my own truth. And that's what I'm going to write. And, and the result is, is this book still broke. You know, one of the things I think that's interesting in this book are the way you develop characters and the types of characters you develop. Because on one hand, we have the very human characters, Mr. Sam, Sam Walton himself. Yeah. Uh, his many successors, all really fascinating and different, kind of different growths off the same tree of flowers. 
we have the characters who are Earth critics, people who run the unions, people like yourself, uh, journalists. But we also have, as characters, the unions themselves are characters. The businesses, the competitors, Costco itself, uh, Walmart. All these, Walmart itself is a character in this book. And this is a fascinating character portrait of, you know, the growth of a corporation. We all know that corporations are now treated like people. You... (laughs) Uh, you do the same thing, and I think that was interesting. So talk about turning the growth of a corporation into a plot-driven character piece that portrays this. And that's what's fascinating to read to see, you know, because like you, the reader who reads this thinks, oh, wow, they really are changing, and we see this, and, and we're rooting for it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think... You know, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I, you know, companies obviously aren't people. They're they're you know made up of and and led by people from the front lines to the C-suite. And um, and so you know, there. But you're right. There are really fascinating characters driving the story from Sam Walton himself, right? This incredible visionary who you know had this idea of going into you know Walmart started as a southern retailer targeting rural areas and small the small town south. And these were places where, you know, back in 1962, when he started the company, people would typically, if they wanted a real selection, a wide selection of of quality goods, they would have to drive, you know, maybe an hour to the right big city or the bigger town nearby to go to the department store to get what they needed. And that would be their big, you know, Sunday outing, or, you know, they could do that once a month or whatever. whatever. Um, and, And his insight was, I want to bring, you know, affordably priced goods of a wide selection of high quality to uh you know to places that don't have it now there were a lot of skeptics there were there were folks who thought he was crazy because there wouldn't be the population density or the frankly the income in those communities to support a retail you know chain that he was trying to build and eventually obviously a retail empire Um, but he proved everybody wrong Um, he had an incredible knack for understanding what customers wanted he also had an incredible knack for going into his competitor stores, literally looking around and stealing their best ideas um, and, you know, and making them his own. Um, he was a great imitator. Um, he was a great innovator himself, um, you know, and, and eventually over time really invested in things, you know, like logistics and, um, you know, being able to really move goods at scale. Um, and the company just grew and grew and grew. And obviously, you know, you know, within decades was transcending this idea of being a Southern regional retailer, you know, it, it began to, uh, you know, move into the Midwest and then really expand all over the, the United States. The point that now I believe that I believe I have this right, that 90% of Americans live within 10 miles of a Walmart. That is a scary thought. (laughs) You know, it's interesting to me when you say that it, Walmart is, in a sense, a very, very much a thing of the future, as per, as we see it now, um, as it exists now. But as seen from you know the nineteen sixties, it would be, seem to be like this thing of the future. Um, you know, uh, imagine a store that's within ten miles of ninety percent of America. That's what I'm going to make. I mean, <laughs> that that yeah. sounds like crazy talk. It also sounds like you know something that Arthur C. Clarke would think about. You know, the the guy who came up with 2001, if he had thought in that direction instead of outer space. And I think that that that's an interesting idea of, and you uh, do a great job of telling the story of this, of the social movement that. Walmart tracks, follows, and essentially feasts upon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, first of all, just the scale of Walmart that you're touching on here is, is you know, it, it's it's incredible. Um, so, you know, people think about Amazon as the as the giant, you know, today, and they are. They're obviously the online giant. Although, you know, if any company can really give them a run for their money, any retailer online, it is Walmart and Walmart.com and 
you know, they, they are, they each, you know, kind of imitate each other in different ways, right? You even see Amazon moving a bit more into brick and mortar, you know, territory that Walmart obviously kind of owns and, and, uh, and, and you've seen Walmart, you know, be pushing more and more and more online and trying to innovate online. And, you know, then they're moving into other spaces simultaneously, whether it's healthcare or financial services or, you know, all kinds of other markets, um, so really interesting watching these two. I, I can't imagine that there's a decision made at Walmart that isn't, you know, that Amazon doesn't hover over and vice versa. You know, these are the two Goliaths of retail slugging it out. Um, but it's important to keep it in perspective. I mean, you know, Walmart is just, it's just bigger. It, it continues to be bigger, um, you know, at least in terms of its workforce. Uh, you know, I believe Amazon has something like 1.1 million U.S. workers, so it's not tiny by any means. But I think Walmart's up to you know 1.7 million U.S. workers now. Um, you know, more than a million and a half. So you know, there's another you know 500,000 or more Walmart workers than Amazon workers in the U.S. Um, I mean, it's just it's a colossus. One of the things that's interesting too, while we talk about this in abstract terms of being a colossus, it is of being gigantic and futuristic, which it is. You also tell the story in terms of the, you know, the actual individuals who work there, the individuals who work there, the individuals who shop there, all of whom 201 can barely afford to live. And this is, you know, what you do is do a great job of kind of like, Focusing in on the on the individual particles of the cloud till we realize just how enormous and how pervasive and how unfortunately at this point permanent the income gap or the luxury gap as it were is between you know all these people who shop at Walmart. I mean they have to shop at Walmart, and even then, if they work there, no matter what. This is an, America is now a nation that lives essentially paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, absolutely. And th- this is really the heart of the book. So the story I tell, right, with all the backdrop that you, you know, you describe from the time of Mr. Sam on to right through these union campaigns, these where they really targeted Walmart like it was a political opponent. This would have been around 2005, 2006, 2007 both the Service Employees International Union and the Food and Commercial Workers both went after Walmart, really because, you know, in the case of the UFCW, they were trying to organize Walmart. In the case of both, they were just also saw Walmart as the biggest employer in America, as the poster child for everything that was wrong with and has been wrong with corporate America in terms of how it treats its workers. You know, pay is too low, benefits, particularly on healthcare, are too skimpy and, and so forth. And so they they really went after Walmart. I carry you know all that through, and showing the pressure that is on Walmart this entire time to raise wages, and and here's what happens: in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hits. Walmart goes in and actually does a lot of good. You may remember uh, FEMA, the federal government, right? The Federal Emergency Management Agency um, really failed. They they had a lot of trouble getting water and food and medicines and other essentials into the devastated parts of Louisiana, New Orleans, and right, that that region that was so just clobbered by, by the hurricane. And Walmart stepped in and used its logistics expertise and its scale to, to bring a lot of those essential goods to those hard hit communities. It was lavished with praise. It 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 really was kind of a shining moment for the company. And it came out of that thinking, well, wow, how could we do this every day? This was the then CEO, Lee Scott, who said and literally said in a speech to his entire workforce, how could we use our scale to be better every day? And so Walmart started doing a bunch of things. It became a greener company. They, they have become an environmental and sustainability leader among corporations, far from perfect, but really doing a lot in that area and winning praise from the Environmental Defense Fund and uh, you know, Conservation International and, and many others. They started to use their scale to lower the price of prescription drugs and help Americans have access to drugs and, and have literally by some health studies, lowered rates of hypertension and things like that in across the country. So did a lot of good, have given away billions of pounds of food to food banks, 
started to, uh, under Michelle Obama's initiative, uh, you know, make their own, uh, the products they put on their shelf, the food products, you know, with have the, have less salt, sugar, and fat, right, to be healthier and so on. So they did a lot of good things and they became this more socially conscious company. Was a lot of this scripted and for PR? Sure. But a lot of it was genuine and, and, and really trying to do good in the world. And, and, they, and they did on all those fronts. The one place they wouldn't budge was on wages, right? So they continued to pay very low. Their workers continued, continued to struggle. In 2015, they raised their starting wage for the first time. This was a new CEO had come in, Doug McMillan. He's still the CEO. And their starting wage at the time, their average starting wage was $7.65 an hour. So barely over the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, which by the way, it still is. It's been there since 2009, right? Okay. Gee, so, yeah, wow. they, which is just incredible. So, but they, they raised their starting wage in this two-step process to $10 an hour. Um, and the book goes on to describe how they've continued to raise wages and they have uh, you know, gotten to a point where their average wage is now over $17 an hour. They have improved scheduling. They've invested in training and education for their workers. Um, they've improved health benefits. They've done a lot of things, you know, five to $6 billion worth of investments in their workers since 2015, right, through the end of last year. So, you know, a lot of good. But here's the rub. At the end of the day, the end of the day, after all is said and done, after all this pressure from unions and activists and you know journalists and politicians and the interfaith community and and just internal business reasons where their business was struggling because they had cut labor costs so much and customer satisfaction was declining and sales were declining and they needed to invest and they they made these investments and they've done all this stuff. The average Walmart worker still makes less than twenty nine thousand dollars a year. That is not a living wage. There are still thousands and thousands and thousands of Walmart workers who are on food stamps and Medicaid. They are struggling to make ends meet. And so that's really what this book is about. It says, man, look at all the effort Walmart's made. The subtitle, as you said, right, is Walmart's remarkable transformation. It's been remarkable. It's been a real transformation. And at the end of the day, it still falls so short in my view. And that's one of the things that makes this a quintessentially American story. By looking at this behemoth corporation, you tell the story not just of the corporation, but I think of America in the past century from the beginning of the last century where Henry Ford made the famous and financially crazy decision to pay his workers enough so that they could own his products. It was like everybody thought he was crazy to stop working on Saturdays and Sundays and pay his people more, and yet he did, and he made a company that's still with us today. This was, but that was the, <laughs> the <laughs> that was the end of the line, right. unfortunately. Since then, Nothing has really happened to change the, the workers' position. On the other hand, the rich have grown so wealthy, it's almost incomprehensible how much money they, they have. And, and one of the things you point out is that the amount of money that Walmart spends on its employees is, is significantly less than it spends on stock buybacks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, I, th I think, you know, right, so the numbers are, right, as I said, Walmart's invested five to six billion dollars, right, from 2015 to the end of last year in these in these worker investments, higher pay, better scheduling, training, benefits, and so on. Um, five to six billion over there. They've, over that same period, they bought back $43 billion worth of their stock, which is, for those who aren't familiar, it's a maneuver that companies make, and they do it for various reasons and, and you know, different financial reasons, but it's seen as a, as a sop to shareholders. It's a way, you know, one thing companies do it for is to try and drive the stock price higher is you buy back your own shares. And so 
you know, again, companies like Walmart, you know, talk a lot about stakeholder capitalism and, and providing value and investing in all of their stakeholders and no longer adhering to any kind of model of shareholder primacy where shareholders come first. But, you know, if you're a journalist like me and you just follow the money, you say, well, yeah, you're okay. Stakeholder capitalism, there's that's remarkable transformation. That's five to six billion over here. But it doesn't mean shareholder primacy is dead because there's $43 billion over, over on the other side here. I, I, I do want to say one other thing. You, you, I think you really hit on it. So look, in this way, Walmart is a, is a source of, I think, this larger problem that we have, this wage crisis that we have as a society. But they're also a symbol. They are, they are hardly alone. They're, they're important. They're the largest employer. They help set the standard. You know, in many cases, they are in effect the market. When they do raise wages, others tend to follow. So they can and should do a lot more, in my view, on their on their own. But they really are a symbol of, and you really hit on this, a country that has come to rely on an army of low-paid workers. Again, these are the folks over the pandemic we deemed essential. But right, these are the people who, you know, give us food. Uh, you know, or at the checkout line when we when we check out of you know uh, of of the store, uh, you know, stock shelves in those places, work in the warehouses, care for us when we're sick, care for our loved ones, care for our kids, um, you know, drive you know packages or us all over town as you know as gig workers, um, you know, and on and on and on. Right? There's just you know clean our offices at night and so on. We have just created an army of low-paid workers across many, many industries. And so these are people who get up, they go to work every day. Most of them, I would venture to say, work really hard. And then at the end of the month, they are left with really painful choices in all too many cases, right? Do I continue to feed my family kind of a full, right? You know, so their bellies are full or do I heat my home this month? Do I buy medication, right? Or, you know, do I pay the rent? Um, these are terrible choices. And there are tens of millions of Americans, working Americans, who are faced with this on a regular basis. You know, you talk about remarkable Walmart's remarkable transformation. And I think you also, at the same time, track America's transformation from a, a, a kind of liberal capitalism into you know, we are approaching what I would call American feudalism, where mm -hmm. there's a huge underclass that's permanently underfed, underhoused, and they're promised a reward in heaven. Yay! Mm -hmm. <laughs> wait, just wait till you die. It's going to be great. Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's easy to say. And and actually, if you are have cruddy health care, it's also <laughs> easy to achieve. So... I'd like you, one of the things too, I think you do really well is you put yourself in the narrative and you yourself take us along. And I think that, that this is one of the, the, you do a really good job of this. So talk about in writing this, making the decisions where you're going to appear, where you're not going to appear, and you know, your own character, because we see this through your perception of, you know, wow, they really are doing something. This is pretty significant. And, and, and But we're always waiting for the word but. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wrestled with this, you know, a lot. So first of all, this is, I'd say, yeah, I, more than any other book. Well, a little bit The King of California with my co-author, Mark Arax. We were characters, I guess. You know, we, we had some dialogue with the protagonist, Jim Boswell, through the book, where we're kind of in there and some scenes with us in there. Um, and if you're familiar with Mark Arax's great writing, he, mm. he's very comfortable putting himself in the, you know, in the narrative. Um, this is a little different for me. You know, I opened the book with that scene of me, at, 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 you know, watching this webinar and then getting this this kind of email, which, you know, sort of sent my head spinning. Um, so, you know, I sort of consciously put myself in the story. I, I did it, one, because... Um, one, I wanted to disclose openly and out of the gate that, look, my institute, the reason I got to tell the story is my institute got money from Walmart. And hey, if you think I'm pulling any punches or sugarcoating any shortcomings of Walmart, you'll be the judge. You know, I, I, I'm going to call it like I see it. I always try and do that. Um, I tend to see things in gray. 
right? The world, a lot of writers write in very black and white terms. I, I in some ways, I'm jealous and admire those who can, who can do that. I, I, I don't think that way. I tend to see nuance and I tend to see two sides of things without pulling punches, I hope. And, and so anyway, I needed to declare we had gotten this, my institute had gotten this money and, and wrestle with that openly. And so suddenly, you know, I was in the book. And so, right. So then, then as a writer, you sort of make these strategic decisions, you know, where do I come in again? And it's pretty subtle. So sometimes it's as little as in, in the thick of the narrative where I wasn't present, right. Through the history, right. And the, and the, the real spine of the book from chapter two through chapter five, is this 10-year arc from Katrina in 2005 up till they raise wages for the first time in 2015. You know, I wasn't present for that, but there are moments where, you know, so how do you keep yourself as a writer? They're little artifices, right? They're little devices you use. Like, so it can be as simple as, but up, but up, but up, he told me. So I just, I'm a reminder, hey, I'm still here, right? I'm still a character myself. So, and you know, the New Yorker does that a lot, right? And they're in their stories, you know, the journalists are, he told me. So I, I do, I do some of that. And then, right, there's a bit more, there's a scene in the, in the um, final chapter where I'm with Doug McMillan, the current CEO. And it was a great moment. It was a great moment as a journalist. We, we, we got together and um, there's a, there's a, in my world, there's a kind of famous chart that the Economic Policy Institute has put together. And it shows what economists call the great decoupling between productivity and compensation. So from basically the end of World War II up until the early 1970s, productivity, so right, you know, worker output, right, per hour of work, right, is, is going up, you know, just surging. It's, you know, so imagine just a straight line, you know, on a graph that's, you know, ascending right up the, you know, it's an upward slope, steady upward slope, dramatic upward slope. And compensation, worker pay and benefits, is tracking in lockstep, like productivity is going up and compensation is going up. And so you can picture that. And what that's telling you is America's economic pie is growing and workers are getting their, you know, fair share of that, right? Their compensation is growing in step with their productivity. 1973 or thereabouts, you know, in the seventies, it decouples, it breaks apart. Productivity continues to rise, not as much as it did in that 30-year period after World War II, but still, you know, quite substantially. And compensation essentially flattens out. And, you know, they stop sharing in this ever-growing pie. So I have this great, I, I literally was in the backs, you know, kind of uh, whatever storeroom or break room, I guess, of a, of a Walmart with Doug McMillan, the CEO. We're doing our last interview. And I, and I took out the chart and I put it on the table in front of him. And I said, Hey, what do you make of this? It's such and a great was, scene. I really enjoyed the hell of it. Yeah. And it was a really fun scene to, to kind of create, honestly, you know, I obviously, you know, did that knowing I was going to write about it in the book. And, um, and it was just a great, it's a great way into that part of the chapter that, that gets into, you know, some of the reasons why these things may have broken apart. And, and, you know, he gets his take on it, which is, oh, workers haven't really kept up with technological advances and, you know, they need higher skills if they want more compensation. And I give my take, which is, yeah, I think there's maybe a little bit of truth to that, but I would say it has more to do with, um, you know, the breakdown in institutions like unions that historically protected workers and Walmart has been infamous in being a union busting company over its long history. And, you know, the the elevation of shareholders over employees. And and so we, you know, we each get to offer our takes as to why this may be happening. You know, one of the things I think you do really well, at one point in the book, you start talking about the skill set. Uh, of supposedly unskilled employees, people who are putting like products on shelves, dealing with customers, ringing up purchases. The, we say this and, and our assumption is, you know, anybody could do that. That's not the case. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it. it. It takes a lot. You have to have self-control. You have to be able to move emotionally from, you know, like one mindset to another with lightning speed to go from dealing with the stocking the shelf problem to a customer who's standing there saying, I want this. I want this. <laughs> to, yeah, totally. to, totally. It, it's a very complicated emotional 
mindset that goes into these jobs we consider unskilled. I, I hate that term. I, first of all, it's it's I, I can't think of any task or job that is unskilled. There are all kinds of different skills. Exactly. Um, and, and look, I'm you know I I'm I happen to be you know skilled at you know maybe writing words or you know using words or or you know being a book person. I'm terrible with my hands, right? <laughs> am I am I higher skilled than a plumber? You know. Now those are often called skilled trades, so they maybe get or you know middle skilled jobs. We, we tend to, you know, and who's the we, you know, elites, privileged people stick other people into buckets um, that, that really are pejorative. And I just think actually factually wrong, you know, go, go exactly. out is, is being a farm worker, right? Unskilled, you know, the, the amount of knowledge you need to actually, right, pick crops with skill is, you know, there's a lot of skill that goes into it. Um, and so, Look, I think doing anything effectively, doing anything efficiently and effectively takes skill. And and these terms, you know, I, I quote Annie Lowry from The Atlantic, who has written beautifully about this, as well as some others. Um, yeah, it's a, it's I think her I think she says something like, you know, it's a cancerous little phrase, this phrase, right, unskill or low skill work. Um, and, and I couldn't agree more. one of these workers through their day from, say, 8 to 5, and, and track Doug McMillan from 8 to 5 and see what each one is doing. I yeah. mean, you might go, well, from 8 to 8.30, you know, Joe Blow is stocking shelves and, and trying to, you know, get a handle on the early customers who are, are irate in, in a hurry. Uh, Doug Millen's having a cup of coffee and, and talking with, uh, you know, investors who are irate in a hurry. Well, uh, so, uh, you know, the, the difference between the two is less than one might think. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. And, you know, I think that, um, again, we just, we just, put people in buckets. Uh, I think those of us who, I, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe we do it out of, you know, trying to, uh, you know, puff out our own feathers or I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, you know, some way to maintain privilege by, you know, shoving people into a lesser status. Um, yeah. I don't know all the cultural or sociological reasons, but, um, but I think just factually it's, it's wrong. I mean, the thing you're hitting on, there's some data in the book. There's an organization called Opportunity at Work that has done evaluation of jobs side by side and, and said, look, you know, there are jobs with very similar skill sets and actually what it takes to do the job. But, you know, if the job is labeled one thing, it, the pay is a lot more than if it's labeled this other thing, um, even though they're they're quite similar in terms of the skill set uh, needed. I I love the the, the storytelling telling a narrative in the book. And I think that that scene at the end with you and Doug McMillan is really a, a powerful scene because, as I say, all the way through the book, we are kind of pulling for Walmart, but we're also kind of scared of them. And, you know, if the, the question is, are they the hero or the monster? <laughs> and, yeah. and the answer is, well, yes. <laughs> The answer is yes. And I, it's funny, I wouldn't call them the monster, you know, at the end, kind of where, where I came out. And again, look, I, I, I don't want to let Walmart off the hook. I think they, they, can, they can and should pay their workers more. I, I don't think there should be a company that has one worker on Medicaid or food stamps. I mean, in effect, that's just the public subsidizing that company um, and, and allowing them to pay so little. Um, you know, I, I think that's awful. Um, and, and but I think that in some ways the real problem is not that Walmart is a monster or that Walmart is evil. The real problem is that in many eyes, you know, Walmart has now become a, a paragon of socially conscious capitalism. That Walmart is now seen as part of the solution because they've raised wages some, and they're no longer part of the problem. So it's not that Walmart is evil. That's not what we should be worried about. We should be worried about that that's what good or good enough in America has now come to look like. We have really set the bar too low. That is amazingly well-spoken and extremely true. And again, I think you do a good job of this just by, you know, describing 
as you do the lives of the workers and the lives of the you know the the union people who are trying to you know get a a foot in the door a finger in, <laughs> in the door to try to change this because in America we should not have to work more than full time to to make ends meet yet we are increasingly a paycheck to paycheck nation and it seems like that's good enough and not for me at least no i look at it a lot and i liken it in the book to climate change mm. right so look the, so the end of the book i i make a kind of full-throated cry for a 20 dollar an hour government mandated living wage right raise the minimum wage which again federally is now still 725 an hour to 20 dollars an hour right and and i know look people are going to think i'm completely bananas and this is radical and this is terrible but i look at it like climate change you know we have set the bar so low we have dug ourselves a hole so deep we have you know by my estimate you know it's 25% to 40% of the us labor force so you're talking you know uh, you know, 40 million to 65 million working people. Again, people who get up every day, for the most part, work hard, and then are faced often with these terrible trade-offs between food and rent and medicine and heat and, you know, all of that, and and are really struggling. And, and so, you know, we've done this over the past 50 years or so, where we have just, right, that, that decoupling of productivity and compensation, right? The pie has grown immensely. Our economy is way bigger than it was 50 years ago, way, way, way bigger. But the gains have all gone to the top 1% or a fraction of 1%, most of them. Most people have been left behind. And the hole has gotten so deep for those folks. Um, and again, these are the people who serve us every day. That's like climate change. We, we can't fix this incrementally anymore. We need to make a big, bold leap. I, I call for $20 an hour, and there, there's some reasons for that. And in, as explained in the book, and, and that's really a family living wage. And then it needs to be indexed to inflation or indexed to the median wage so that we can stop relitigating this all the time and, and it can just rise in lockstep with the cost of living, right? $20 an hour, there's a group called Living Wage for Us. It's an advocacy group and they're actually working with companies to uh, have them provide a true living wage for their workers. And they've done some really you know, hardcore economic calculations around this. 80% of Americans live in a county where the family living wage, so what it takes for you know, a working adult, along with another working adult in the family, to support you know, themselves and two kids. That's the, that's the typical average size working family based on real calculations. For a family living wage, it's 80% live in, live in a county where it's $20 an hour or greater. 40% of Americans live in a county where it's $25 an hour or greater. And this shouldn't be surprising, right? Full time, if you're lucky enough to get full time hours, that's a little over forty thousand dollars a year, twenty dollars an hour. So, does that you know? If you hear that, no one's getting rich off that, right? That's you know to have a decent life. That's the floor, right? That's kind of makes I think it has a lot of face validity. But man, we are a long, long way from that. You know, one of the things I think that you do really well in the book is to incorporate statistics and numbers but we never feel we're being drowned in them and so i'm want to just to ask you to talk about you know mixing in facts and story and using facts as story elements mm, because really that's one of the things i think you do really well you know, the facts as you describe Walmart early in the book, it's this kind of character and it's this level of facts. And then they kind of make some changes. But, you know, that leopard still has the same spots, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. Uh, thank you. First of all, I, I appreciate you noticing that. Um, you know, I've been a financial journalist for a long time. I, you know, I started at the Wall Street Journal um, and you know, especially I think when I was there, it's still a great newspaper, but, um, you know, I really learned to write a narrative there. And, and, you know, they used to have these more of them, these long page one stories, you know, it used to be three a day, you know, the kind of funny one in the middle and the two on either, you know, either bookend of the, of the front page. And, um, you know, learning how to write one of those long 
Wall Street Journal page one pieces really taught me how to write a narrative. But, you know, it was a business paper and I covered industry, I covered business, I covered working folks and 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 C-suite executives alike. And 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 so I think, you know, I just sort of picked up on how to um, hopefully judiciously use the right numbers in the right moments so that you're not drowning the reader in them, but you're actually using them to kind of punch them in the nose. In other words, every number should should really have some force. There's a, there's there's a purpose behind that particular fact. That exactly. fact driving home a point, right? Yeah, I, I that's exact. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's exactly true. When you get to the end and you're showing them the uh, showing McMillan those graphs, you're, I'm just thinking, wow. Right. Because 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 at some point, and look, numbers can be, you know, manipulated, right? You know, lies, damn lies and statistics or whatever the saying is. But you can, you know, you can you can can't get around. The numbers are the numbers. It's, it's you know, it's math. At the end of the day, you find out the number of workers they have full time and part time. You find out the number of hours they have. Right. Which the company, again, all disclosed to me the average hours they're you know, full time workers work only 36 hours a week on average and their part-timers are 23 hours a week and you you know find out the number of workers in each camp and you can do a weighted average calculation and that's how you know you know the average Walmart worker makes less than $29,000 a year and it's fair to say at a low paying company right that the median wage so the point at which half make more and half make less right? The median probably at a company like Walmart would typically skew even lower. So you're giving them the benefit of the doubt to say half their workers make less than $29,000 a year. That's probably being generous to them. Um, but that's powerful because you can say, man, nearly 800,000 workers at Walmart make less than $29,000 a year, right? That's a powerful fact. You can tell people, yes, they've made investments, five to $6 billion over the last, you know, right? You know, since 2015, that's real investment. That's a real transformation. And then over here, there's $43 billion of stock buybacks. So I think there's a way to use numbers, again, sort of selectively um, that can really underscore the most powerful points that that you're trying to make. And two, the, I think part of the point of concluding with Doug McMillan is when you're talking to him in the room with him, Seems like a nice guy. Seems reasonable, really nice open-minded, generous. All the things you would kind of hope a Walmart CEO to be. And yet, at the end of the day, it's it's a no-go. <laughs> yeah, and it's not a no-go, but it's a it's a you know it's it's what they've done. And again, I, I think there are a few things going on there. So one is you know I I don't know him well. I I've met him now you know several times. I've had some engagement with him. You know I like Doug McMillan. He, he I think he is a good guy. If you met him, you'd like him. You know I've met way weirder CEOs before. I can tell you that, and and way more off-putting ones. Um, he's very personable. He he's very he has high emotional intelligence. Um, he's interested in you, and I think genuinely interested. I think he's a genuinely curious person. Um, you know, a lot, he's a, he was a basketball, you know, player growing up and I, I, you know, was a basketball player. We, you know, talked hoops for a long time. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, but he works within the constraints of several systems, right? So one is he works in, he works, you know, within the, the constraints of, of Walmart itself, where again, they, this is remarkable in the context of their own history that they raise wages, you know, even to $12 an hour as a starting wage and, and at the 17 as an average wage, you know, but, but again, they're only going to go so far so fast. He's within, he's within this system that is constrained by the Walton family and Wall Street, which own the shares. And it's, there's only, he's, he's in a box. He plays within a box. And then that box is within a larger societal box that again, has, has partly with Walmart as a source and partly Walmart reflecting this larger societal issue of where we have a wage crisis. We've, you know, we've let the top 1% gobble up our economic gains for 50 years, you know? So, and he's part of that. He, you know, makes whatever he makes, 20, you know, $5 million or more a year as the CEO. So, you know, is he a good guy? Yes. Do, do does he do he and other CEOs tend to drink a lot of their own Kool-Aid and think they're actually doing more than they're really doing? Yes. Do they operate within these constraints? Yes. And that's why I think the only solution at the end of the day is what I call for, which is 
we need a collective solution. We need a government solution. We need a public solution. We need a government mandated living wage. It's the only way we'll get there. We will never get there if we wait for the Walmarts to get us there. And again, Walmart's really done a lot in its own context, but that's the whole point. You look at it and you go, and at the end, they got a lot of workers on Medicaid and food stamps. Finally, one of the things that kept turning the pages in this book was the title, which is remarkably clever in my view. When you, it's still broke. And I'm asking, does he mean functionally or financially? At the end of the day, the answer is again, yes. Yeah, the answer is definitely yes. And it it really kind of works on three levels. Um, So, right, look, Walmart workers are, if you're making an average of $29,000 a year, all too many of them are still broke. The company, which has done a lot, but not enough, in my view, is still, you know, it hasn't fixed things enough. It is still broke. And then again, it is society, really, that is really broken, right? We live in this, we live in an America that is suffering from a wage crisis, and we have yet to find the leadership, the courage, the the you know ability to to pull ourselves out of it, and and so that's broke too, and and it works on all three levels. I'll just say one final word, which is, of course, the company hates the title, and they have let me know that. Um, one executive reached out to me about I don't know maybe a couple months before publication, and um, told me that it was uh, you know how disappointed they were in the title, and I'm still talking to them, but you know his words he, he's called it um, glib and cheap, are his words. So. I'm like you. One man's glib and cheap is another's engaging and clever. But, you know, anyway, that's <laughs> that's their view of it. The new book by Rick Wartsman is Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Thank you for joining me, Rick. A pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.